I'm honored to be here with a guest with a better firsthand understanding of women running in presidential politics than any other person, Secretary Hillary Clinton. Thank you so much, Secretary. (laughs) Thank you, Emily. We are honored to be here in your office today. So you were the most qualified person to ever run for president. Given how qualified you are, and given that I could have this baby at literally any minute, do you feel qualified to deliver this baby? With help, sure, (laughs) absolutely. And, you know, I'd prefer that you not because I'd like you to be in a better environment than my office conference room, but the table's big. (laughs) We've got a kitchen so we can heat some water. So, Uh, you know, if it happens, just let me take over. (laughs) Perfect. I feel like naming rights are up for grabs here. This could really... Now, what number is this? This is baby number three. Yeah. So, but we have a boy and a girl, so we kind of used our top names. You have. So do you have a list? We have a list. We're going into the hospital with a list is what we're thinking. Okay. Yeah. But we're also feeling like winner of Iowa caucus, baby names, like they could make potentially. I wouldn't call the baby caucus. I I wouldn't do that. (laughs) I'm sorry. I I don't think that works really well. Okay. I'm going to take that for note. I wouldn't do that. And primary also, I wouldn't. I wouldn't put high on the list. I don't know. You know, mm. nouns are so I prefer in now. primaries to caucuses, but I still wouldn't name a child for either. <laughs> They're so in now, those non-traditional names. True. That's if true. I named the baby primary, I'd probably have to move to either LA or Brooklyn. <laughs> Brooklyn for sure. <laughs> so look, I created this podcast because a lot of people were looking for substantive but digestible ways to understand the presidential primary. It's very dense. It's very hard. And a piece that was so incredibly important to me was that all of our experts are women. Mm -hmm. Because even though there are women running at the top of the ticket, all down the ticket, the commentary around politics is still about 63% male. And given the fact that voters this year will be majority women, we should be getting our wonky substantive information from women. Imagine that. Oh, my goodness. What a radical idea. (laughs) (laughs) So... You know, it's not great, but it's gotten better. Yes. Um, I'm wondering how you've seen the narrative change as we have more women running, commenting as the reporters. You know, it's no longer the boys on the bus, <laughs> given your campaign. How have you seen the narrative change with more women controlling the narrative, writing the stories? Well, I do think there has been change. Not enough, but at least to the point that you you feel that people are more self-aware when they fall into the old stereotypes and double standard caricatures. So that's a big step forward. Uh, Because honestly, in my campaigns, I think people could have taken lie detector tests and passed by being asked, well, don't you think it's a little sexist to uh, only comment on how women candidates look and never say a word about the men candidates' clothing? So I think people are more aware. I think we still have work to do, but we're making progress. So you have this incredible book out, Gutsy Women. You talk in the book about it being a reference for young women based on your own scrapbook. I love this image, your own scrapbook uh, throughout your career. And, you know, as we mentioned, I'm raising a son and a daughter. Chelsea is raising a daughter and two sons. Right. And something that I think about a lot is how do we raise feminist sons? It feels like books like yours are a, an excellent a scrapbook for everyone, for all of our daughters to have examples. But how do we raise feminist sons? Look, I think you're uh, asking the right question because even though we want women to keep breaking through and standing up and being their own gutsy selves, we also want to create a world in which both 
women and men are comfortable with equality and with the idea that, you know, be whatever you want to be and, and don't have to be held back by society or in any other uh, way uh, deterred from pursuing your dreams. So look, I, I really think that it starts in the home and parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, you know, need to be lifting up both boys and girls, you know, not only by encouraging girls to do things that uh, test their athletic ability or their competitive desires, but also by building kindness and empathy uh, with both their sons and their daughters. And obviously in, in our family with our, you know, two boys and one girl, uh, there's a lot of that, a lot of very conscious thinking, as I know there is with your family, about how do we ensure that we're not imposing uh, gender stereotypes? How do we open up the world to both our sons and our daughters or grandsons and granddaughters? So it starts in the home. And then, of course, the schools have a big role to play. And there's still a lot of data that boys get called on more. Boys are considered to be you know, more rambunctious or more uh, active so that they are treated differently. So we just all have to take a deep breath and say, look, we're raising, you know, sons and daughters to become the kind of men and women that will value equality, empathy, kindness, bravery, resilience, and be grateful for uh, the chances they have in life. So this show is about the primary. So I do want to ask you a question about the state of the race. We can't ignore what is happening today mm-hmm. uh, with impeachment. So you know this better than anyone. How do any of the candidates run against Trump, knowing now that the Republican Party has basically sanctioned interference from foreign governments? I think we are facing very serious obstacles to a free and fair election. We didn't know in 2016 everything that they were doing. Now we know, and we see it all over again. So I I think there's three areas that we have to focus on. You have to focus on voter suppression and voter purging. We're doing a better job this time in bringing lawsuits and changing uh, legislation and regulation to try to get an even playing field. But the other side is determined to shrink the electorate, to eliminate as many Democrat-leaning voters as they possibly can. And nobody can shut their eyes to that. The second is what happens on social media, both the hacking and theft of information that is then weaponized and all of the false, fake news, propaganda that is targeted to people predominantly but not exclusively on Facebook. And then third, we have to now run against Trump based on his record. You know, when he ran uh, four years ago, uh, he could make all kinds of promises like, oh, we're going to get rid of Obamacare, but we're going to give you something that's the best in the world. Baloney. Never happened. They tried to destroy the Affordable Care Act and substitute nothing for it. We now have the opportunity to hold him accountable on health care, on climate, on everything that we can see going off the rails. So that's you know going to have to be uh, a campaign run both on offense and defense. Your documentary is coming out, your Hulu documentary. Yes, right. <laughs> Love the trailer. Oh, Congratulations. You. <laughs> yeah. you definitely got some attention recently uh-huh. for some conversations you had around it. Yes. Um, one of the things that you said in that in the interviews around that was that 
Senator Sanders did not have a lot of colleagues in the Senate that was interpreted by many as saying that nobody liked him at all. There's such a big magnifying glass on anything you say mm-hmm. surrounding him. I mean, did you expect to get that kind of response? No. Did you know when you said it? No. I mean, I said it like a year and a half ago. It was 15 seconds in a four-hour documentary. But I think people need to have to really think hard about who can beat Trump. And it's not the popular vote, as I learned to my own uh, grave disappointment. Uh, I got more votes than anybody except Barack Obama once. Um, So it's not the popular vote. It's the Electoral College. And those are going to be tough states to win. Uh, So I just want us to be really focused on winning. That's all I care about. So on that point, I mean, Senator Sanders does have a lot of, he has a very dedicated base of support. Whether he's the nominee, whether he's not the nominee, he does have a big hand. He has a lot of influence. So what do you think that he can do, whether he's the nominee or not nominee, to help get to that point of unifying people to against Trump? Well, he can do it, for one. <laughs> That's not our experience from 2016. And that was the point I was making. I know what it's like to lose a hard-fought primary. You know, I got more votes than Barack Obama in 08, but fewer delegates. I immediately ended my campaign. I endorsed him. I appeared with him. I went to the convention where my delegates really wanted to cast their votes for me because they'd worked really hard for me. And I said, no, I'm going to go to the floor of the convention. I'm going to move his nomination by acclamation. Then I did 100 events for him. Okay. Contrast that to what did not happen in 2016. And That cannot happen again. I don't care who the nominee is. I don't care. As long as it's somebody who can win and as long as it's somebody who understands politics is the art of addition, not subtraction. You have to bring people together, build a broader base, and then take on a really well-organized, well-funded Republican campaign. That's how we're going to win. I actually, in 2008, had a was very undecided between you and Barack Obama and actually ended up supporting him in the campaign. But I think because of how much work you did to bring people along that I kind of barely remembered it, to be honest, afterwards, that was felt so positively about both of you that I left going into the general election just feeling very positively about the process. That is the goal. The goal is hard-fought primary, get a nominee, close ranks, try to beat the other guy. And that's what you're supposed to do. There must have been an actual conversation. I mean, you must have had an actual conversation with, at the time, Senator Obama and then with Senator Sanders in 2016. I mean, I can't imagine being on either side of that conversation, but you were on both sides. How did that conversation differ? Oh, it was like night and day. You know, I had served with uh, Barack in the Senate, and so I'd campaigned for him when he ran for the Senate. So I knew him. I also knew that he would be a good president, and that he could win. And so when we met in early June, after um, all the primaries were over, and as I say, I got more votes, but fewer delegates. So therefore, let's, you know, try to bring the party together. We had a couple of hours of a sit-down conversation, just the two of us, and went over everything. Challenges from the campaign on his side, my side, what we were going to do to win, what I could do to help him. It was a It was a very honest, very open, very positive uh, conversation. So fast forward, I mean, you had 
unfortunately, a very different outcome in uh, the 2016 primary, where I won by 4 million votes. I won overwhelmingly in delegates. There was no question about who was going to be the nominee. But unfortunately, you know, his campaign and his principal supporters were just very difficult and really constantly not just attacking me, but my supporters. We get to the convention, they're booing Michelle Obama, John Lewis. I mean, it was very uh, distressing and such a contrast between what we did to unite in 08 and all the way up until the end, a lot of people highly identified with his campaign were urging people to vote third party, urging people not to vote. It had an impact. And I am somebody who thinks, you know, the Democratic Party is light years better than the Republican Party. Uh, I'm not going to say it's perfect because no political party or candidate is, but just look at the price we've paid for uh, a Trump presidency. And it's unthinkable to me that any caring, smart, concerned American citizen who considers him or herself on the you know, left of our politics would want to see four more years of this kind of uh, very destructive presidency. Well, there's been a really interesting turn of events in the last couple of weeks. Michael Bloomberg jumping into the race, and people are very divided whether they think that he's the savior or the spoiler. <laughs> and even in recent polling, they're showing that he's number two in Florida as a key state. So he's having an impact. I mean, what do you think about him jumping into the race, his strategy of skipping the first four state primary states? Well, he has a unique position because he is uh, able to uh, get into the race late. And I think as we're speaking today, he's spent somewhere upward of $250 million. So he's got the resources, and he's got a good record to present to uh, the Democratic electorate. And, uh, you know, he has made some real strides. He's not in the top tier nationally, but in a few places, as you say, he's got some real traction. I, I don't think we'll know what's going to happen until people start casting their votes. So we're on the verge of the Iowa caucus. You know this better than anyone as someone who not only ran in the Iowa caucus, but won. What did you actually do the night before the Iowa caucus? What, like, what were you reading? Oh my gosh, we weren't reading. We were, <laughs> we were <laughs> traveling. We were going everywhere in Iowa having last minute events. We were on the phones. Uh, we were having strategy meetings. The caucuses are incredibly unpredictable. It's really hard to poll caucuses because at the end of the day, it's not a primary. You don't know for sure who's going to make it out if the weather's bad or if there's some last-minute glitch. And a lot of people who would vote in a primary can't come out on an evening because they work a night shift or they have childcare issues or whatever the problem might be. So it's very difficult to figure out who's actually going to show up. And this particular caucus, they've got new rules, they've got technology. I think it's going to be quite unpredictable. I was actually out there in Iowa in 2016 and spoke to a lot of people who wanted to go to the caucus on your behalf, but had exactly those problems. They had child care, they had elder care, they didn't have transportation. It is a very undemocratic way of picking a, a nominee. You know, I love Iowa, I love the people in Iowa, but... I'd go 
to a like a hospital and I'd speak and I'd meet a bunch of nurses and they'd say, oh, we wish we could caucus for you, but, you know, we don't get off until, you know, it just makes no sense. And so who knows what's going to happen? Uh, but I'll be happy to see the primaries start rolling around because that's a much easier way for people to participate and for the outcomes to be, you know, much clearer. I mean, do you have any advice for the candidates? This is their GOTV. Like, this is yes, their last weekend. Do you right. have any candidates based on your experience? Any you advice? Just, you just have to work to the last, uh, you know, last dog dies, as we say. You got You just have to be out there. You've got, you've got an organization. It it's been built over many months. Um, you hope it can produce. Uh, it's, it it's a uh, nail biting time. This you know last uh, three four days before uh, people gather on Monday night, and you also have to be aware of any kind of shenanigans. You know people who aren't really eligible Iowa voters trying to show up at the caucus sites, or people giving wrong directions to try to you know send some people off in one part of the school where it's being held instead of the other. So there's a lot of planning that goes into trying to, you know, prevent um, it going off the rails in uh, certain places. So it's it's a complicated undertaking. Do you have a, a betting pool at like the Chappaqua Library, <laughs> let's say, with the girls? Do you have your money on anyone in Iowa or for the nomination? No, I really do. All I care is we nominate somebody who can win the Electoral College. Uh, that's my bottom line. I, I hear that. <laughs> The national security establishment is losing its grip of shifting global realities and the preference of American voters. The Eurasia Group Foundation's new podcast series, None of the Above, goes beyond conventional foreign policy wisdom to offer new ways of thinking about the future of America's global role. None of the Above's host, Mark Hanna, who worked on the Kerry and Obama campaigns, sits down with leading global thinkers, journalists, activists, and historians going beyond the usual foreign policy suspects to find new answers and new ideas to guide an America increasingly adrift in the world. I had the pleasure of working with Mark a few years ago and I'm thrilled that he has taken his talents to the podcasting space. Episodes will cover everything from nuclear restraint to the U.S.-Saudi corporate connection. None of the above is produced by the Eurasia Group Foundation, a nonprofit founded by Ian Bremmer and dedicated to bringing non-traditional voices into the foreign policy conversation. Listen and subscribe to None of the Above wherever you get podcasts. I want to switch gears a little bit. So in the last election cycle, I worked with an organization here in New York called Eleanor's Legacy. Right. And I worked with uh, women candidates, helping them to form their narrative about how they were running, why they were running. One of the things that we spent a lot of time talking about was how to balance strength and warmth. It feels like a particular challenge for mm -hmm, women. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, as you've seen more women running, do you think that that becomes easier with more women? Like, how is that manifesting itself? Emily, I think it does become easier. And if you look at what happened in 2018, which is a great test case for how we win in 2020, lots of women ran. They were all sizes and shapes and backgrounds, and they had uh, a range of experiences to, you know, present to the voters. Um, we, you know, flipped Republican seats, uh, and it was a great effort by uh, Nancy Pelosi and the House Democrats to both select candidates, to train them, to support them, and then to 
come up with that winning strategy. I think the more women who are on the stage, uh, the more people will see that, you know, just like men come in all sizes and shapes, uh, different hair styles and things, so do women. And I think that begins to sort of dull or eliminate the prejudices or the biases or the questions about women. And um, I'm hoping that in this upcoming election, we do everything we can at all levels of politics to recruit and run more women. Uh, We have to make it more normal, and we have to get voters to think about, well, you know, this person can actually do a good job for me as opposed to, you know, I don't know. I mean, she's got little kids. Should she be running or... I don't like her hair, whatever it might be. (laughs) You'd said that you hoped that the media wouldn't be as sexist this presidential cycle, but that you've been disappointed. Yeah, yeah. Do you have some examples of how you've been disappointed? Look, I think that it's just a run-of-the-mill commentary that you see or hear. There are a lot of examples, you know, where women who have been aggressive in a debate, for example, are put down or criticized for being aggressive. Uh, where women who try to, you know, lay out a whole agenda and answer specific questions are then criticized for being specific or overprepared, for example. I mean, there's just this whole mindset about double standards and holding women to a much tougher standard than any of the men. And so I, I, I think it's gotten better, as I said in the beginning, but I think we still have a long way to go. Do you think that at least the commentary around your presidential run would have been different had there been more women in the field? Or I guess how would it have been different? I don't know. I think it, we're seeing it being somewhat slightly more different this time around. So that's all to the good that we have you know, more women out there. I have to tell you, I was really shocked in one of the interviews you did for this book for Gutsy Women. Uh, when you they asked you what the gutsiest thing you'd ever done was, mm-hmm. and you said to stay in your marriage. Mm-hmm. Personally. I Personally. Mm-hmm. Publicly run for president, that was pretty gutsy. <laughs> I, I agree. I'd say that was pretty gutsy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, I mean, did you go into that interview ready to be so vulnerable? No, I mean, I mean she asked me a question and I answered it. I mean, no, I mean, that that is the answer. If you're going to ask me personally what the gutsiest thing I ever did, that was it. You've written about it. Mm-hmm. Jennifer Palmieri's written about it, about the conversation in your campaign about just how vulnerable you should be to run for president, mm-hmm. since we don't have a template mm-hmm. for that at this point, although I guess we have a little bit more mm-hmm. of one now. But I mean, why are women expected to be more vulnerable? Like, how does that play out? It's a very difficult question to answer. And in the four hour, uh, four episode uh, Hulu documentary about my life, we go into a lot of uh, these issues because it's about my life, obviously. Um, But just stop and think about the differences in questions that women are asked than men. And that's true across the board in politics. People feel much freer to ask uh, a woman a personal question. Kirsten Gillibrand, who's my senator, um, she got questions about how she could run for president when she still had two little boys at home. I mean, there were other people running for president who had school-age children at home. They didn't ask the men. Their fathers, right? That was just not the same uh, kind of question. So it, it goes back to the point you made about the balance between strength and assertiveness and warmth and vulnerability. 
we're still struggling to get that in the right uh, you know, place because it's not easy and people still carry all of these uh, expectations about, about what women should or shouldn't be. Congresswoman Katie Porter from California had a profile done earlier this year, and I saw her talking about it afterwards, saying that you know, they did a profile on her as a member of Congress with three young children, and the place they wanted to do the photo shoot was to follow her grocery shopping. She's like, when has a member of Congress ever been photographed grocery shopping? But it was because there was all this intrigue around how would she do it? Can she manage? Yeah, no, I, I mean, that's a perfect example. And what was so exciting about the 2018 midterm is all of the women who got elected, some married, some unmarried, some straight, some gay, some with children, some childless, that's what we want people to start having to uh, grapple with is, guess what? You know, women, just like men, have many different uh, kinds of life choices that they've made. And it's just unfortunate that, uh, you know, Katie Porter, instead of, you know, John Porter, um, is going to be stereotyped in that way. I mean, she's great at the way she handles the press and handles herself. So, you know, she's going to sort of push through it. But it still is a reminder that we are far from treating women candidates, women office holders the same as men. And it makes such a difference when you have women like in every level, like not just as the candidate, but it impacts the structure so much. The first presidential debate that you were in at Hofstra University mm -hmm. was about a month after I had my first child. So I saw you take the, the nomination to the convention. Five days later, when I was on <laughs> CNN, went into labor that later that day. So the, my first commentary back was... Uh, was the debate. So I was booked for the debate to comment on it. I was nursing then. So I, my first time pumping, take my pump with me. Um, and so I asked both campaigns and I asked every network that I was booked on if they had a place for me to pump. And for the most part, I got like deer in headlight kind of look, but your campaign was actually the only one that found me a place that was private and that was clean for me to pump. I was told by the networks that the Trump campaign actually had an employee who was pumping, uh, but that she was doing it in a bathroom stall. So, I mean, it really shows, like, it makes a big difference when people are prepared at every level. Uh, you know, Chelsea gave birth uh, to her second child in June of 2016 and then, you know, spoke at the convention uh, for me uh, a month later. Uh, we went on a book tour where she's still nursing her third child. So, I mean, we, we have seen all of this. And I love the fact that you and she are just so matter of fact, like, okay, I'm nursing, I, I need a place, and I'm going to expect you to make that available. And I love that. I love that because that was unthinkable, you know, back when I was a new mother. Um, it just, not just, you know, deer in the headlights, you'd be arrested or you know, something would happen to you that was so outrageous. So, I mean, that's one example. Okay, we are trying to break down these barriers that, um, you know, limit not only women, but particularly uh, mothers and mothers of young children. Uh, so I, I guess we can say that that's, you know, some small step forward, but there still is a lot of resistance. And I appreciate you saying that it's, it's I guess, bold of us to be doing that. It's more a fear for me of leaking on air. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, Remember that happens coming too. <laughs> <laughs> Just some very basic logistics there. <laughs> 
So you've stayed active. You've stayed with your organization right. Onward Together. Right. You've been supporting many organizations that are helping women run for office. There's never-ending speculation if you will run for president. Do you ever think about running for another office as well? No, I really don't. Um, you know, I am happy doing what I'm doing right now. Uh, this is a different stage in my life. Uh, when people say to me, how are you? I say, personally, I'm great. As an American, I'm crazed, <laughs> yeah. depending upon the day, terrified, uh, outraged. Um, so I'm going to stay active. I'm going to keep speaking out. I'm going to remain in the public eye. I'm going to comment. I'm going to help do everything I can to elect uh, Democrats and particularly women up and down the ballot. Because honestly, Emily, I think our democracy is at stake. I think we are at such a pivotal moment in history that it scares me. Uh, because it's not only in this country, but it's in other places around the world where uh, there are forces at work that are undermining democracy, that are you know, feeding forces of greed uh, in ways that we can't even you know, imagine uh, happening in previous times, uh, stoking fear and resentment and anger, particularly at uh, minority groups, immigrants, uh, there's just a lot happening that is troubling. Plus, you add throw in climate change and uh, disease epidemics and everything else that we're facing. So I'm going to be as active as I possibly can be speaking out on things that I care about. Do you have a vision of what that could look like, I mean, specifically for this presidential campaign or this cycle and yeah. even beyond? No, I don't. I mean, I'm just going to do whatever I can. And i I've always done that, so that's not that's not new to me. But I think, uh, you know, stay active with Onward Together, which supports all of these groups that are really on the front lines of recruiting and training and supporting uh, candidates, um, standing up for causes I believe in. I've been active in the effort to try to just speak out against and help cage children at the border and everything that we've done to people and ways that are really uh, inexplicable uh, compared to having a secure border with humane treatment, which is, should be our, our goal. Uh, I'm really upset about you know the reversal, not just on climate change, but on environmental protections of all kinds. And the, the battle over health care continues. You know, there's a scene in, in the documentary about me that I had forgotten. I mean, once I saw it, it came vividly back. But when I was working on universal health care back in 93 and 94, the footage that the director found of me being burned in effigy because I wanted quality, affordable health care for everybody is just a reminder of how seriously challenging, difficult, and dangerous a lot of the you know political uh, work that we do is today. You made some news on Howard Stern. Hmm. Are we going to see a picture of your college boyfriend. He sounds like a real <laughs> Greek god. <laughs> there have been pictures of him uh, in various and uh, sundry places over the last, oh my gosh, 25, 30 years. It's uh, likely that it could pop up again. You never know. Well, in fact, there might be one in the documentary. <laughs> oh my goodness, tune in. <laughs> Sadly, uh, he passed away, so uh, you know I can't invite him to come to a, a screening. But uh, yeah, I think you'll get to see him in the documentary. <laughs> we can't wait. Thank you so much, Secretary. It's really been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you, Emily. Glad you're doing this. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of your primary playlist. 
For behind-the-scenes photos and extras, follow us on Instagram at Your Primary Playlist. Special thanks to Wonder Media Network and the whole Your Primary Playlist team for producing this show. Talk to you next time. Not presuming that you would only want a t-shirt, we also brought you some Chardonnay. Okay. <laughs> okay, here we go. Thank you. I think we'll see what kind of interview this ends up being if we crack that open. Well, it'll be longer than 20 minutes, that's for sure. <laughs> exactly.